You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. sailing trip I did when I was 18 and this took place in the early 70s which is important only because uh, for me at that time and for many of my friends we were dealing with this acute sense that we'd really miss something important that we were born just a couple of years too late for the 60s and in fact when I was when I when I was uh, I don't know I must have been 14 when Woodstock happened and at that time I was at this conservative Christian boys camp in the backwoods of Maine. I couldn't have been any further away from that and we, we really tried to recover what we, what we knew we'd missed during those years. We were just five or six years too young for this and so as we get into the early 70s you know, we're still kind of clinging to these ideals, trying to find something good to do with your life, you know, to be a, a tree surgeon instead of a banker or to make sales or to do something that didn't sort of lock into that lifestyle. And I personally was waiting, you know, to get on the magic bus with Ken Kesey and the, and the Merry Pranksters and all those proto-hippies. And that was never going to happen. And I guess as close as I got was this chance to go on this sailing trip with, uh, with my friends. And I was supposed to go off to university. And instead, I just said, sorry, I won't be coming until February. And we worked during the autumn. The university system's a little different in the States. And we worked during the autumn. And right about the end of the year, we took off on this sailing trip. Down the coast, we were going to go down the east coast of the US over to the Bahamas, and we were going to get as far as we could get. Uh, and before we get too deep in this, this little boat, you have to understand, was uniquely ill-equipped for a trip like this. So my, my friend, while you know American car culture is legendary, the high schools have these massive parking lots, just hundreds and hundreds of cars. My friend had kind of shrewdly uh, asked for a boat instead of a car and his family this kind of well-to-do family said sure and they gave him this little sailboat but it was little it's like 22 feet I think and it's something you could use to go away on the weekend but it's really not something you want to use for offshore traveling it had no navigational equipment other than a compass uh, and to try and calculate where we were we had this kind of J-shaped tube of plastic, and it was marked on the side, you know, four knots, five knots, six knots, and this little cork kind of floated up and down, and so you hung over the side of the boat, dipped this in, and tried to figure out how fast you were going. So that was it. Now, this is 20 years before, you know, the World Wide Web. There was no civilian GPS. There, there were systems on large, you know, on massive yachts, but nothing for a boat this size. And I foolishly put all of my trust into these friends that we went with. It was my best friend that I just climbed over. His older brother, 
and, uh, and another friend. And this guy's best friend, as it turned out. So, and I knew I had no skill at all as a sailor, but I just blindly trusted these guys. And so off we went, and we started, well, we, we started, I think it was New Year's Eve or almost New Year's Eve or something, and had to take this Volkswagen van down the coast to where these guys had moved the boat the summer before. And it was just perfect. This was turning into the kind of trip that I totally dreamed about. So I was, I was really up for this. And kind of trying to pull this back into our theme, there were dozens of times on this trip where we were either kind of wrecked, run aground, shipwrecked, all of this comes in. Some of them were literally had to do with the sailing. Some of them had to do with a, uh, any number of ways we could have become shipwrecked. We could have been arrested in numerous states. We could have been cut off. It turns out somebody was funding this. So I've made a list of those, and I'm just going to try and run through these quickly. Uh, and we'll see them. The, the very first uh, opportunity to get shipwrecked begins on the night we began, because we left during an oil embargo. They, in the United States, they'd stopped selling petroleum at midnight on Saturday, and you couldn't buy it again until 6 o'clock on Monday morning. And for some reason, we had to leave on Sunday, and so naturally, we left at midnight figured we'd drive through the night. By the time we ran out of petrol, it, the, the uh, gas stations would be open in the morning. So we set out at midnight. Before we went, naturally, we went out. We saw other friends. We were drinking a little, smoking a little. Everyone was a little groggy. We get in the car and start driving. I apologize. We did that all the time then. But terrible. I wouldn't do it now. But uh, yes, we did that regularly. And we set off down the coast. And these, I was with my friend's older brother. My friend and the other guy were going to be the relief shift. They climbed into the back of the van, went to sleep. We drive, and we're only gone about an hour and a half, and we're falling asleep. Now, there were no gas stations open, no place to buy coffee. We had nothing to keep us awake, except for this little stash of LSD that I brought. And so, well, you know, we that was the only thing we had, so we pulled over and went to sleep, right, until it was safe? No. Naturally, we took the acid, got behind the car, got behind the wheel, started again, and I, you know, sort of got off first. This hit me first, so I got behind the wheel, even though I'd never driven a stick shift before. So it took two of us to get the car in gear. This guy was telling me what to do with my feet while he did the stick. And then we run into a, uh, into a rainstorm, it's pelting down. I turn on the windshield wipers, and the offside windshield squeaks. And since we're doing this acid, this squeak was driving us absolutely insane. So we pull over, and on a Volkswagen, you know, it's got that almost uh, vertical front windshield. We just took that wiper and put it out like that, and it spun like radar. 
And we decided that was enough to keep us from hitting everything. And we drove the rest of the night with me steering and this guy kind of leaning over to look through my side of the windshield. So that was one averted. We get down, pick up this boat where they stored it in some river uh, in rural North Carolina. It's near, uh, near Wrightsville Beach or something down there. Very pretty, but this is early 70s, and we're in clan country. And we're trying to, you know, embrace a certain counterculture lifestyle, I guess, what it was called then. We did not fit in in clan country. And we got down there, and it turned out to be New Year's Eve, and we looked around this boatyard. There was nothing there. There was no place to eat, no place to drink. We asked the person at the boatyard where we should go, and he says, oh, you might try the Moose Club. They like yachtsmen. So we tied up the boat, presented ourselves at this sacred society of the Moose, I don't know, if the Moose banged on the door, and some guy comes out and looks at us and says, who the hell are you? Doesn't like the look at us at all, and we immediately say, we're yachtsmen. And he says, well, come on in. <laughs> so that was another one that we averted. We take off down the coast, and for some reason, again, I don't ask because I trust my, my friends blindly, we start going down the intercoastal waterway. And that's a canal that kind of goes down the entire east coast from Maine to the tip of Florida, snakes around the Gulf Coast and up the Mississippi. Well, in this part of North Carolina, it's, it's very windy and it's very shallow. And we're in this boat with, a, with a, uh, a fin keel on it that sticks down at an angle, not a centerboard. So we draw a lot of water. And the very first night we're out, we're lost in the fog and we run aground. And we can see the light of another ship behind us. And he's bearing down on us and we're trying to yell trying to wave this guy off, we don't have any lights, and he comes up on us and up on us and up on us, and then pulls alongside. He totally can see what's going on. It's this local lobsterman, uh, I'm sorry, crabber down there, and they took crab, and he gives us a line, and he's on the bottom, we're on the bottom, but he's got this huge engine, so it, he pulls both of us off, takes us to his dock, lutz us, uh, tie up next to his boat, and in gratitude, we give him a case of rolling rock. Pretty much the only way we were provisioned, we had a couple cases of canned chili, 25 cases of rolling rock, uh, this quarter pound of pot, I guess, and my little personal stash of LSD. So we decide that Rolling Rock is the best way to go here. This is a regional beer. It hasn't gone national yet. He's so thrilled. He feeds us dinner on these stone crabs, this amazing delicacy that they take down there that's not in sufficient quantities to ship commercially. So he gives us this amazing dinner with that, goes out and buys some bootleg whiskey that he gives us to drink, and we avoid another one. Unfortunately, by this time we're in South Carolina and 
the intercoastal waterway only gets worse from our point of view. We're running aground regularly. And the way to get off of this, the best way they have, is they put me up at the top of the mast in a bosun's chair. Bosun's chair looks like a little, you know, a, a swing you put in the backyard, only you clip it on to uh, the sheet that you would use to raise the mainsail, and they would winch me up to the top of the mast, lean the boat over, and with my weight up so high, the boat would go, the rail would nearly be in the water, and we would draw three feet less than we did a couple minutes ago, and we could sometimes motor off of this. And so once they got me up there, I discovered that they thought it was very funny to leave me there. So I did most of the coast of, uh, most of the intercoastal waterway for all of South Carolina, stuck at the top of the mast. And I would yell down, come on, it's not funny, let me down, and they, you know, fuck you. You know, I'd say, I, you complain about me snoring, you stay up there. And I say, no, no, I'll never complain again, forget it, you know, and there I was. We made it into uh, South Carolina, Hilton Head, all these wonderful places that are there, porpoise that kind of go in these brackish waters, uh, sea otters, amazing, beautiful stuff. But it took so long to get anywhere that we say we're going to go offshore for the state of Georgia because it's only worse down there. So we're midwinter, it's a little boat. We go offshore with Georgia, and remember our navigational system? You know, we've got this J-shaped tube. So we're trying, we're, we're miles and miles, who knows, 20, 30 miles off the coast in this tiny boat, and we're trying to figure out our speed by hanging this J-tube over the water. And as long as we're going down the coast, we know if we keep the coast to our right, we're going in the right direction, but we have no idea how far we've gone. So we come in in the morning, the sun's up, we see a beach, we see a town, we, they say we've done it. And they've got the harbor charts for Jacksonville Beach. So we start coming in and heading for the inlet there, only we're not at Jacksonville Beach. We're at Fernandina Beach, the next beach north of that. And Fernandina, during the Civil War, built this jetty a mile out into the ocean where it kind of sank. It's just beneath the waves, and we're heading right for it. When we finally realize that, boom, we do a jibe. We turn around. We brush the rocks, but we're not dumped. So we survive another one there. Down the coast, we discovered that this little yacht club in Cape May, New Jersey, that was the size of kind of a classroom, uh, it was a member of the Corinthian Yacht Clubs, which have reciprocity with uh, yacht clubs all over America, maybe, maybe this country too. But we could just show up at a yacht club and present our card, and they would allow us to tie up. Well, they would allow us to come in and didn't mean they would allow us to stay. So I've now been kicked out of a half dozen of the best yacht clubs on the east coast of Florida as we would go from one to the next and they would, they would show us the door, send us off on our way. And we were getting closer and closer to where we needed to go offshore to get to the Bahamas and my friend Dickie's father decides he wants to see what the hell we're doing. 
and I discovered he must have been footing the bill for this because neither of his sons wanted him down there, but he and his wife decide to fly down to Florida to meet us in one of these towns, and he's going to go, you know, spend a night with us as we, as we tootled down the coast. And these guys are sort of grumpy, and, you know, you got this little boat, there's not exactly a, you know, a shower or a bathroom in there. And, and what we did, in all seriousness, was the front of the boat, there's this little bit of railing, U-shaped railing, called the pulpit. And if you wanted to poop, you dropped your trousers, you went up to the front of the boat, hung on to this hole, and you kind of, you know, just hung over the bow of the boat to evacuate your bowels. And I have to say, it's a wonderful, wonderful sensation. Uh, <laughs> Quite unlike any other way I've performed that particular act. And if you wanted to pee, you just went to the rail, grabbed the stay, and you peed off the stern or something. You're in the ocean. And that part was kind of okay with uh, Dickie's dad. But it's okay that we're pooing off the bow, peeing off the stern, but then we were washing our dishes over the side. And he said, wait a minute. <laughs> So he refused to eat or drink anything for like the 18 hours he was on this boat. And we thought we were going to have to run him to the hospital, but he was okay after they rehydrated him. So we dodged another one there. So we made it all the way down to Palm, uh, to Palm Beach, and you can go directly east from there. And in theory, you, you reach the Bahamas. Uh, it's a, it's a very odd sensation, you know, you've got this long coast in the east in America, this long coast in the west, you know that the ocean is here, if you're going this direction, you're, is, if it's on your right, you're going south, if it's on your left, you're going north, you almost never put it behind you and go due east. That's kind of like getting out to the end of Cornwall and just heading due west, there's nothing out there. And for navigation, we have this little J-tube. And I still trust my friends implicitly, so I put the J-tube in, they put the J-tube in the water, decide we're going this fast, we sail for two days due east, and we can't find any fucking islands. <laughs> you know, there should be a million of them out there, we can't find a single one. And they're getting nervous, and I'm getting nervous, until we see some planes going like this direction. We're going here, the planes are going there. And I finally say, guys, I think the planes are going there. So why don't we go there? And we found an island. Had we missed, it would have been, I, I don't know where we would have ended up, in France or something. So we dodged that one. But what happened, so we, we ended up in West End in the Bahamas, and we found roughly where we wanted to be. We get there at night. We pull in, drop an anchor. And the next morning, we're awakened by the biggest customs agent you've ever seen in your life. This guy, in my memory, is seven and a half feet tall. I think that's really unlikely, but he was massive. Uh, and his size is important. 
First, we hadn't put out a quarantine flag. Apparently, if you go into a harbor in another country, you arrive by boat, you're supposed to flow this, fly this flag that says we haven't cleared customs, nothing's going to come on or come off until they see us. And my friend who is the sailmaker held up the kind of raw cloth and said, I, I'm, I'm really making it now. It's really, give me half an hour and I'll, and I'll fly the flag. They were not impressed with that. More worrisome is that this massive guy comes onto our little boat and he starts looking through stuff. Now, by this point, we've smoked all this weed. We've taken all this... Uh, rolling rock that we've got. We've got a few cases of that, but I've still got a little bit of this LSD floating around in something. And I think it's probably in the back of the boat. And what happens is, to get back there, you've got to kind of climb under the deck in this little bitty space between the berths and the deck above you, and this, is, this guy is too big to get back there. Had that not been the case, Instead of being here, I would still be in jail in the Bahamas for drug possession. And I caught the biggest barracuda you've ever seen. Me holding a barracuda like this, saying, get it away, get it away. It's not that the barracuda was dangerous, it's that my three friends were so totally jealous because they know I don't give a shit about fishing and I caught by far the biggest fish there. But remember that J-tube for our navigation? Well, hitting the wrong town, hitting the wrong island, we have the same problem. We're constantly trying to go into, a, into an island uh, with the wrong harbor charts, and we have no way around the, uh, the, the coral heads that you can see during the day, but you can't see them in the late afternoon or evening when inevitably that's when we went in. So we had a couple of near misses there, and we survived. Our other next close call was in this great British pub where they had a dartboard on the back of the door. So the locals all knew to come in the side door. Only a fool would take the door with the dartboard on it. No one told us. I almost lost an eye. but. Uh, that too we dodged and eventually, like five weeks later, we've had this great adventure. I've got to go home to start university. And so we're, we've run out of money basically is the only reason why I'm going back. And we take this little plane this, between one island to another. We get to this big airport in Nassau and discover that we don't have the six dollars we need for the head tax to leave and they're going to refuse to leave us, to let us get on the plane. And we are so grubby and so horrible looking. You know, there's no shower on this thing. I've, I've got dreadlocks virtually at this point. We're tan, we're dirty, our clothes are falling apart. And the only way out of this is to threaten to camp out in front of their in front of their ticket desk. And we look so awful that they immediately sh shove us on the plane to get us out of there. And there I was home. And like four days later, I was at this very sedate little New England college, the kind of small college that you have in the US, small classes, everybody knows everybody. And I was sitting in a sherry party next to the dean of the faculty, wondering how I'd gotten shipwrecked. So, thank you.
Michael Langsfield. Thank you, Michael. True Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website truestorieslive.co.uk.